We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Please open your Bible to 1 John this, this morning here. If you're new or visiting, our practice is to read through a chapter of Scripture in the morning and evening service. That way we get uh, a more encompassing view of Scripture because we often you know, are preaching through a book of the Bible, and so it takes a little longer that way to get through the whole Bible, and this kind of uh, helps in that way. This morning we're in 1 John. Last week, uh, Pastor Matt read chapter 1, and so we'll be in chapter 2 this morning, chapter 2 of 1 John. God's Word says here, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, I think we all do, don't we? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, maybe you have questioned in your walk with the Lord, am I saved? What is that assurance that I have that I am God's child? We're not talking about eternal security. We know uh, God keeps us, but do I have that personal assurance? And you could ask yourself this question, do I keep his commandments? Do I obey them? Verse 4, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments or obey them, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know, or we could say we are assured, that we are in him. He who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is, an, is in darkness until now. But, we could say, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is, is in darkness and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. 
I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, or false teachers, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have written to you because you do, because you do not know the truth, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you, have, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. You see the connection there? If, you abide, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, what do they hear? The truth of God, the scripture, what is true. If that abides in you, you also abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, please. Today, Luke chapter 2. I want to say that I am grateful, very grateful, that each and every one of you are here today. Thank you for coming, for being here. Some of you young people that are here, thank you for putting up with my long and boring sermons, right? Don't say yes to that. <laughs> I'm very grateful that you all are here. Thank you for coming. Let's turn to Luke 2 and verse 36. We're going to look at the early life of Jesus. This will have some application to our young people as well as to us as parents the birth narrative of Jesus ends with one more remarkable person giving testimony to the redemption that will be coming through the child. That person's name is Anna. 
And we looked at her in some detail around Christmas season last year, so it's been about nine months ago that we looked at her uh, story and spent a whole message on that. We won't do that again this morning, but touch on some highlights. Uh, The text also tells us about the family's travel home after the events there uh, at the temple. Luke omits, very interestingly so, omits the uh, threat of Herod, the flight to Egypt, the return, and all of that. That's left for Matthew's gospel, each gospel having its unique focus and and attention to some of the details. One of the things that's interesting to me is that when you look at the gospels, the accounts of Jesus' early life are almost non-existent, except for the one that we have when he was 12 years old, which we'll look at here. There are no fantastic stories of his youth about his, you know, uh, I don't know, academic prowess or some miracles that he did, you know, uh, secretly sort of or whatever. There's, There's none of that kind of, you know, I don't know, overblown sort of stuff. There's just this one account of him, and it, tell, it does tell us a lot about the family and about him, but the focus of the Lord is not on, uh, of God is not on that, but it's on his ministry later on when he became about 30 years of age, as it will tell us in Luke chapter 3 in verse number 23. We'll get there in due course. We start with 2.36 through 38. Let me read that. It says, Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. I think that means 84 years of age. Who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, What instant was that? Well, that was the instant when Simeon saw Jesus, saw the consolation of Israel, knew that God's uh, promise to him had been fulfilled, that he would see the Lord's Christ before he died. Uh, And and while he was giving this testimony and this prophecy to the parents and also speaking about Mary and the sword piercing through her own soul, that the scripture says at that instant, Anna came in and she gave thanks to the Lord, verse 38, and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Anna's name here derives from the name Hannah in the Old Testament, which is from a verb in Greek that means to show grace or favor in the noun form of favor or grace. She was a prophetess in an era when God still gave that gift upon occasion. Uh, when we looked at this, we looked in some more detail at that, and we said, well, maybe she predicted the future. Um, Probably more commonly, she simply proclaimed the truth of God's Word and was very knowledgeable in the Scriptures uh, to others. And there's not necessarily a supernatural element to that prophetic ministry. Some would say that what we're doing right now is a prophecy kind of thing, not in the sense of predicting the future, but in the sense of proclaiming the truth. And really, when you think of the Old Testament prophets, although they did have an element of look forward to what's coming, and you know there's going to be judgment, there's going to be restoration and blessing and all of that, a lot of their ministry was calling the people back to faithfulness to the Mosaic law. It wasn't new stuff. It was get back to the basics, get back to the old stuff. And she may have been just that way. She joined a few remarkable Bible women with the title prophetess, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, 
Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. Later, Philip's four daughters are called prophetesses. She was very old by the standards of the day. Remember how we kind of joked a little bit about the low life expectancy and how, you know, if you're over 40, you're pretty much, you know, you're over the hill according to, you know, the life expectancy back then. We're grateful that we have a longer life expectancy now and, uh, and don't expect to perish by the time we're 40 or 35 or something like that. Well, she was 84 years of age, which was twice the age in years that some, many perhaps, people would have reached themselves. It would be like today if the life expectancy is 74 or 75, somebody living to 150. And you would say, boy, they have really achieved a great age and great longevity. She is exemplary because the text tells us that she was serving God in the temple with fastings and prayers night and day. Many would consider that behavior very odd, wouldn't they? Well, you're always at the church. You're always at the temple. Why are you doing that? Well, she loved being there because that was where God's special presence was manifested in the Old Testament and to some extent in the early years of the New Testament era, although it was still under Old Testament kind of regime, if you will, Old Testament law. But it's not, it shouldn't be unusual for her to be doing this because most people today are concerned primarily about their own things. And they look at her and they say, why are you so you know, concerned about heavenly things? You're of no earthly good. Well, let me tell you, it is earthly good for people to devote themselves to the full-time service and worship of God because God deserves it, doesn't he? He does deserve it. The fact that we have to work, the fact that we have to do all kinds of the mundane things to keep ourselves going is in a way unfortunate because it takes us away from the worship of God, which is the highest and most necessary thing. By, by taking away time to fast and pray, taking away time to be in church with God's people, to, as we said earlier, to worship God. That's why we're here. Uh, she is a great example of this. So Anna walked into the vicinity where Simeon was holding the baby Jesus and giving his prophecy to Mary and Joseph, and God thus blessed Anna too, and that she was able to see the Messiah with her own eyes, the Savior of the world for which she looked and which she then described to all those who longed for redemption in Jerusalem. Does, text doesn't tell us, but I kind of wonder sometimes how much did Simeon and Anna interact before this? Simeon was obviously a guy who hung around the temple. Anna, a woman who hung around the temple. Did they ever talk to one another about the redemption that they were looking for? And Simeon shared, look, the Lord told me I'm not going to die until I see the, the Lord's Christ. And Anna was like, well, I'll tag on to that. I'm going to hang around where you hang out so I can see the same thing. I don't know. But it's interesting to think of the human factor and the interactions that occurred about this whole matter. She was able to see the Messiah the Savior for which she longed to receive redemption in Jerusalem. How I hope, how I hope that you long for the redemption of God as well as these people did. And you say, well, I have that already. Well, you have some of it, right? You don't have all of it. When you have all of it, you'll know. (laughs) 
That's not yet. That's not now as we sit in these chairs. We have salvation and we can say we're assured of it and we know what God is doing, but there is a sense in which we have not yet been rescued fully from sin. We have not been rescued from disease, from suffering, from discomfort, the discomforts of this life and so on. We hope that God will soon come and reward us by seeing the Messiah at the rapture of the church. You know, we, we may not, but maybe we will. Maybe before our life is over here on this earth, we'll see Christ coming and calling us up to meet him in the clouds of the air. What a blessing that would be. The text tells us what Anna did at first. What did she do first? Coming at that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. Thank you, God, for sending the Logos to come as Jesus and to be a faithful high priest our Savior, our Lord, our Creator, our Rescuer. The response of a believing person, the response of anybody should be thanksgiving to God, but the response of a believing person should be, thank you, God, for your Redeemer. And may we be thankful people just like she was. Simeon and Anna were two among a small, relatively small group of people in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem and its districts that were looking for redemption. They were a different kind of person than the normal kind of person. There are people looking for money and those looking for entertainment, those seeking for peace and those for man-made solutions to the world's problems. There are those that look out only for themselves or to redeem themselves, but there is a certain kind of individual who is looking for redemption from God for humanity. Today, Christians are that kind of person. I pray that you are that kind of person, that you're really looking for what God is doing in the world and not just kind of bouncing along and not really paying attention to what life is all about. Anna presents to us a model of living and thinking. I I asked us back in January when we looked at her in more detail if we are at all interested to be more like her. I challenge you to look at life more like she did, awaiting redemption, knowing and telling others about God's word, serving God diligently, giving thanks, being faithful to God in old into your old age. Don't just run out of steam in your spiritual life at the end and say, oh, I did that part. I want to take it easy. I, I can't get too much into that anymore. No, into your old age, continue to serve God with the opportunities you have. I mean, think about when you... Some of us, some of us have the opportunity to retire from our work. What are you going to do with that time? Oh, other stuff will fill up your schedule. And no, you fill it up with stuff that it's like, it's like when, um, you know, you have idle time on your, in your mind and stuff just begins to fill that mind up and things that aren't necessarily supposed to be there and stuff. No, you fill up your mind with what's supposed to be there. You fill up your time with what's supposed to be there. You schedule. You make a plan to serve God and stick to the plan like Anna did. Now look in uh, the next segment of the text, verses 39 and 40. A simple narrative here, but interesting nonetheless. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, see Joseph and Mary are following the law of Moses, the law of the Lord given through Moses, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. 
Luke mentions almost in passing the travel of the parents back to Nazareth of Galilee, this time with a child outside of the womb instead of inside of the womb. Which trip was easier? I wonder. We always talk about how going to Jeru- you know, going to Bethlehem, uh, all that distance, nine months pregnant, and so on and so forth, and it's all, you know, you think, well, oh, it's so terrible, and uh, ups and downs in the, in the Judean wilderness, and it was, and we talked about that, and it's 90 miles more or less, something like that, and on modern roads, it must have been a difficult journey. But now in just passing, Luke says, and they went back with baby in arms. Can you imagine that? Diapers and everything. <laughs> you know how it is when parents say, you know, when we traveled, when, when we traveled and we were just the two of us, just quick, now it's like you've got to bring 13 bags with you and a car seat and everything else, and it takes forever to get out of the door and get on the road and all of that. How was it back then? Probably a little simpler, actually, back then. I didn't worry about all the accoutrements and things, but still, quite a journey that they had, and he just passes over it. They just went back. I want to focus more on, um, well, I could focus on several things here, but one is in verse number 39. They were following the law of the Lord. How the Bible told them to do it, they did it. Okay? Uh, This is a never-ending battle. Okay? I tell people, this is how, when, when they come for counsel, this is how you need to do your marriage, Ephesians 5. Colossians 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. This is how you need to do it. Are you going to arrange your life around the Scripture or are you going to try to conform the Scripture to your life? They conform themselves to the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord said you do this this sacrifice, you make this presentation, you dedicate the child at the temple, circumcision, the eighth day, this is the 40th day here, and they did that. So it behooves us, just like Mary and Joseph, who were righteous people, to, to arrange our lives and to do them, to, to make decisions, to carry out things the way the Bible says to do it. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. All that stuff that's taught there and how to arrange, how to arrange the home. Raise your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Uh, be obedient to the authorities. Uh, don't work as uh, somebody just trying to please men, but trying to please God in your work. That, all that stuff in Ephesians 5 and 6. Just, just commit to say, look, I want to arrange my life the way God has me, wants me to, to do that. Now, the other focus I wanted to, to uh, put here was in verse 40. The child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, the child grew. There's a mystery here. Look, it just kind of blows your mind to think the Logos has taken up human flesh and is growing in bodily size and stature and also in these other areas and changing. Now, he grew. Now, humanly speaking, if we just set aside the mystery of the hypostatic union, it's called, between God and and the human nature there, God and man and one perfect person. The growth part, if we just set that aside, the growth part's easy enough to understand. Most of the time, it happens. On occasion, it doesn't happen normally due to an affliction of some sort, genetic or nutritional or environmental, something like that. But that's because we live in a world in which there's a curse on sin. And what's happened here has been 
very detrimental to human flourishing and development. But normally people grow and Jesus grew like he should. It says he became strong in spirit. Now my text has in spirit, yours may just say he became strong. And I know not all manuscripts have the in spirit phrase there, okay? So you're going to see he, he became strong. I have he became strong in spirit. But it seems to me that both mean the same thing. Here's why. It seems superfluous to me that Luke would mention that he became strong in a physical sense when he just said that he grew. That would be basically saying the same thing. The strength of spirit is the point. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 80. Luke 1, 80. Now, this is a verse about a child, but a different child. This is John the Baptist. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So the strength of spirit is the point, I think, of the passage. Um, we see that from the parallel in John's life. The quality here of being strong in spirit is not confidence. It's not good psychological adjustment, you know, good social skills. Rather, Jesus had a firm grasp of matters beyond the mundane in the law and the things of God. And he responded to situations by the leading of the spirit without sin. Okay, that's what it means to be strong in spirit. A person who has a sense of the reality behind the reality. Now, that sounds kind of strange, but you're with me? The person who has a sense of the reality that's behind the seen reality, the spiritual reality behind the seen reality. You know, you see, can you see things behind what's being presented on the flat, multicolored screen with talking heads on it? Can you see the philosophies that are driving their news production or their entertainment, their pretend, all of that sort of stuff. Do you see that? Do you see what the devil is doing in the world? You see what God is doing in the world. You're looking at things not just like, you know, my next meal and got to go to work and got to go to sleep and get up. You see a bigger picture, strong in spirit. Thirdly, he was filled with wisdom. With no sin to hinder him and no foolishness to limit him. What heights of wisdom could a boy reach in this world? Can you imagine a youngster, 12 years old, wiser than you? Truly wiser than you, not sophomorically wiser than you, but really wiser than you. This wisdom came through knowing God's word. John was similar. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me just mention that, go back to what I just said. I kind of went over it too quickly. How did Jesus know this? We might kind of think that, well, God infused that knowledge into him or he brought it from the Logos and kind of, you know, it's kind of like, don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost like he got all that knowledge and wisdom by cheating. I don't think he did. I think he got it the old-fashioned way. You know, he learned it. By, by paying attention to what his parents taught, by being in the synagogue, by going to Jerusalem year by year, by meditating on the things of God, just like Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man, blessed is the young boy that meditates on the word of God, who treats it like David did. Your word is more than my necessary food. It's like fine gold, better than fine gold to me. He loved it. He didn't just say, that's what my parents believe. They got to get with the program. You know, this is the modern era. We don't believe that stuff anymore. No, he took what God gave in the Word and imbibed it and really meditated on it, made it his own. 
God's grace, fourthly, was upon him, the Bible says. Just like John the Baptist, the hand of the Lord was on the future baptizer, just like God's grace was upon uh, the young Jesus. And that's same for us. I mean, these characteristics are not perfectly attainable by any of us or by any of our children, are they? But you look at that list. Can our kids grow? Can our kids uh, be strong in spirit? Can they be wise? Can God's grace be upon them? Absolutely. Not in a 100% measure, could we say, but in something. And we need to pray that that's the case. These characteristics are not entirely out of reach for us or our children. So let's just pause for a moment. Would you join me, please? Father in heaven, I pray that you would work in our young people, that they would look like Jesus here, growing in grace and wisdom and being strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, obedient to parents, submissive, just like we'll see in a few moments, Lord. I pray that our kids will be marked by this, and you will help us to raise them with these goals in mind. To honor you in Jesus' name, amen. Now we come to the episode, just for a few more minutes, please. Um, And I appreciate the guys that shared their testimony. That was excellent. So um, you can blame them for the extra time that I'm going to speak here, just for a couple more minutes. No, it's it's all good, and we need to spend the time to, to honor God. In 41 through 52, Jesus is 12 years old. His parents again exhibit obedience to the law of Moses by every year at the Feast of Passover, going up to Jerusalem just like they were supposed to with the great company of people that would go from Galilee and Nazareth and went down to uh, down south to Jerusalem but up in elevation. On one of those trips, Jesus was 12. A simple miscommunication between the parents and the child left Jesus alone in Jerusalem. Nobody sinned to have this happen. Mom thought dad had him, and dad thought mom had him, and mom was probably speaking with all the ladies on their little group as they walked back home, and dad was with all the guys as they walked home, and they just didn't know what, what had happened. And then they you know, realized that after a day's journey, they're like, oh, where, where is little Jesus at? Uh-oh. <laughs> where are they frantically searching for him, trying to find him? But what did the young man do? Well, couldn't go to a safer place than the temple, just hang out there for a while, wait for mom and dad to realize they left me behind, and uh, talk with the teachers of the law. In very short order, just a couple of days, he had built a reputation as a legal scholar, understanding and answering questions that were very difficult. This shows not so much that he was using his divine faculties. Of course, he was without sin and without foolishness and all those limitations, but that he paid good attention to the law, the writings and the prophets, and was able to apply them to various situations. He had studied them at home in the Nazareth synagogue and in Jerusalem. He was a good student because that's what a believer in God does. He meditates in the law day and night. He hides it in his heart. He treasures it more than fine gold. He lives by it. He gains wisdom from it, he listens to it, he takes it in. Now, and that's what we want for ourselves, isn't it? We want to be just like that, don't we? And just because we're not the Son of God, which we're not, and we're not going to be a Son of God like He is, we're sons of God by faith in Christ, we're 
born again, we're adopted into God's family, but we're never going to be like him exactly in the sense of infinite, you know, sinless, never having sinned in his past. We have all that baggage. We have finiteness. Presently, we have sin. In the future, we'll be more like him. We'll be very much like him. But for now, we want to be made more and more like him in wisdom and knowledge and love for the word of God. He exhibited that as a young boy. Now, his mother and father were very concerned about his well-being. You know, you lose track of your child for, for one minute at the store, and what happens to your heart? Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. If that goes on for any length of time and you begin to think all the worst possible things and you're anxious and call the store security and try to find lock the place down and all that sort of stuff, uh, they were anxious. We could say they were understandable. I mean, it was understandable that they were anxious, but I alluded to this this morning. What does God tell us? Don't be anxious. But God, this is really important. I've got to be anxious about this. No, don't be anxious about that. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. And, and after all, if history were any indicator to mom and dad, what would it have told them? Well, God's looking out for the child. He already protected them from Herod, I mean, the powerful ruler of, the, of that space, and sent them to Egypt for a while and then brought him back. God, will, the Father, will watch out for, for Jesus. Uh, but the parents did eventually find him, and, and, and when, when he said, uh, listen to this, when they, they found him, he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, some have said that, uh, well, let me back up. They didn't understand what he said. They did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Now, afterwards, I'm sure they gathered together their faculties and understood what he was saying, but the the account is interesting because it tells us that Jesus knew from an early age why he was here. He wasn't totally in the dark in his youth about his purpose for being here. He was here to do his heavenly Father's work. And it says something like this in the Greek text. I give a very overly literal translation. It says something like this, In the things of my Father, it is necessary for me to be. In the things of my Father, it's necessary for me to be. Now, there's some question, should we translate that in my Father's house or in my Father's business or, or whatever? The, the difference is not enough for me to get worked up about, although most of the time Jesus was not at the Father's house, but he was always about the Father's business as he grew older in his life. Wherever he was, he was doing the Father's bidding. I think this is sort of like when we say a person is engrossed in the things of God. He was in the things of God, deeply in those things. Now, lest we think that Jesus was a bit of a rebel against his parents, he wasn't speaking insolently here. The text clarifies that he went down from Jerusalem's elevation in Nazareth and was obedient to his parents during his teenage years. Okay, did you see that at the end? He was subject to them. Now, that's a miracle. He's a teenager. Did you get it? That's a miracle? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, very obedient. Seriously, think about it this way. He was subject to them. 
How is it that the Son of God was obedient to other people? If he can do it, could you do it? He was obedient to his parents. Now, they were good people. But he would say, look, my parents weren't perfect, and I know it. But they would say, our son was perfect. (laughs) And that was the only son that was really perfect. You know, you hear people say, oh, I'm a a wonderful, beautiful, perfect child. Well, sorry, that's not true. But uh, he was. Very interesting, though, that he was obedient to others. And Luke adds in verse 51, he went down, he was subject. And then it says in 52, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So we could add that to our list from before about the qualities that we hope for our kids. He had a good reputation before God and people, and we pray the same for our children. Luke 51 tells us something like what verse 19 said, that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. His mother kept all these things in her heart. She filed them away in long-term storage. She saw how others responded to him, these things she held close in her heart. She mulled them over and what they might mean for the near and far term. She cared about them. She did not just let them pass by her eyes or in one ear and out the other. As a mother, she loved her eldest son and wondered, what does all this mean? Now, closing here, a major way to apply what we've learned here is to strive to raise our children so that they are concerned about the things of God, so that they experience God's grace, His wisdom. They're strong and they have a discerning spirit. We need to be diligent to figure out how to build an environment in which we can cultivate this kind of young person. For one thing, we... Ourselves, if we have young people, we ourselves must be people who are concerned about the things of God and are serious about God's grace and wisdom and discernment because we can't really cultivate that which we know nothing about. Are you with me? If you don't know anything about this, how in the world do you expect to cultivate this kind of environment and this kind of child in the little garden called your home? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for the blessing of looking at the Word. I pray that this challenge will will find a good soil to lodge in and grow and bear fruit, and we'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.